Well, one more message from uh, the book of John, uh, John chapter 2, verses uh, 12 uh, to the end of the chapter. Uh, one more, I've been uh, invited to provide some help uh, in this topic area to the church in, uh, in uh, Qatar. And so they've asked me to address uh, this theme and this topic. And uh, so it's helped me because uh, uh, the Lord willing, uh, will, I'll speak 14 times in those uh, a few days. And so anything I can do to help uh, in advance is a big help as we take, took a little bit of a hiatus from our Dr. Luke study, and this will be the last. But uh, I'm asking the question, is, is anger ever appropriate? I mean, uh, be nice, right? Don't we go to junior high? You ever read the book? Uh, it said, everything I ever needed to learn in life, I learned in where? In kindergarten. That's right. <laughs> Keep your hands to yourself. Be nice. Don't be angry. Don't hit your sister. You know, these kind of things, right? <laughs> Most of it makes me laugh because, you know, I think the author is pretty well right when you're thinking about just socializing little demons. You know, I hate to tell you, your kids are little demons and they come from big demons like us. You know, my daughter wrote that. She says, holy cow, I never realized how selfish I was until I had children. Oh, I look at them and I see myself and I am in horror. You know, like I, and we know that feeling. And if you don't, you desperately need to see me after. Okay, do that. But is anger ever appropriate? Don't ever raise your voice. You know, be nice always. Well, how about that? Uh, many people in our day have the impression that Jesus was a meek, and when they say meek, because we don't use that word anymore, that is not a complimentary word today. And Moses was the meekest man that ever was, and that was really saying something. You say that today, and <laughs> you say that to a guy, you know, like he's down at the gym. Hey, you know, you're the meekest guy I ever saw. He'd probably punch you out or something like that. Meek? What? Yeah, you don't want to say that, right? You know, meek is meaning weak. That's how we think of that today. Meek is weak. That's not what it meant in biblical time. Uh, but they think of Jesus being some kind of meek, some sweetie, you know, almost effeminate person. Very offensive. Some of you, some of you endured uh, the rock opera musical Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, and uh, I, I never saw it, but I read the, I read the uh, the text of it. I don't want to give anybody money on that thing. If you saw it, you need to repent probably. And, uh, but it was, uh, are you who they really say you are? Oh, just this, just this Jesus. It, 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 you would never get that from the Scripture. Never. Never. But people have that idea that, that he's that. We have come to think on your sheet. We've come to think of Jesus as gentle and the compassionate one, and that's true. That's absolutely true. He's the good shepherd. And don't we love that, that imagery uh, of the Lord? I love that. He, he carries us when we're, and, and the beauty of all that. But that's not all who he is. God is light and love, he is. And we love those things, and people love to hear about that. Oh, the love of Jesus. Oh, but if that's all you're, you're, you're only playing uh, part with part of the orchestra, the of the wonder of who the person of, of, of God in Jesus is. It's more than that. He's light and love for sure. But he's also inflexibly righteous. And we don't like to hear that. Inflexibly. It doesn't bend. It doesn't grade on a curve. 
You know, you took math, and you're like, oh, I got a 58. Teacher, are you curving? Is this going to be the bell curve? You know, like, no, you all failed. You all get F, right? Inflexibly. God is, uh, God is righteous. God is just. And Jesus is that way as well. We don't like to, the, the culture does not like to think, doesn't like to think about Jesus at all anyway, but does, certainly does not like to think of, uh, of him just that way. Uh, did you know that God both loves and hates? Did you know that? Malachi tells us. Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? What? And if you, you're not thinking rightly, let the Word of God alter the way you're thinking about God. Say, well, I don't like that. I'm not going to think that. No. Let it challenge the way you think about God. He loves and he hates. And what does that idiom mean there insofar as that? That's for another time. We are told that it is, in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. Wow. Aren't we preaching about love? And listen, people don't know how great the gospel is because they have far too lofty of an opinion of themselves and don't know that they're really lost, headed toward hell, and need to be saved. They're thinking, I'm doing pretty good already. What's the God? I don't know that I need the gospel. And if there's a God, you know, I'm, I really fully expect if I die, I'll be in heaven, if there is a heaven. That is the con. When I talk to folks, that's, that's sort of it. If they think about anything like that at all in our pagan, secularized society. Uh, but, to, you know, you say, hey, you know the Bible? It's a thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. No, I never. What? What's that? That's not the God I know. Well, you know, the greatest display of God's spirit of sin, that's his wrath, is not found in the Old Testament. If you take a required comparative religion class at the university, a lot of times they'll give a characterization of uh, showing how distorted the Bible is. They'll say, well, you know, really the Bible teaches that God is an angry, tyrannical, uh, wrathful God in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's love and the music kind of like, oh, he loves and it's Jesus and all that. Do you know that that is a gross mischaracterization of the Word of God? Do you know the greatest display of the anger of God is not in the Old Testament? Now, it was displayed. Do you remember a day when God wiped out the whole earth, save eight people? I mean, he preached for 120 years. That's what Peter said. No converts. It's like Jeremiah preached, you know, before the fall in, in Jerusalem there. No converts. Another case where God's people are small. The whole world destroyed. Where do you think you're getting oil to fill your gasoline, to fill your car so you can drive to McDonald's and get a cone? It's the oil, the world that once was, was buried. And uh, it's carbon fuel. I mean, that that stuff once lived. Where did it live? It's down there. It was buried, smashed under a worldwide deluge when God judge the world that once was. And we see it in other places. How about, how about Sodom and Gomorrah? Boom, just wiped it out just that quick. How about other places? Wiped them out. The earth opened up one point. There it is. Kate Ashburn, there it is. Just swallowed them up. There they went right down in. Man, that'd be pretty dramatic, wouldn't it? Wow. You oppose Moses? No, I don't think I'm going to oppose God-given leaders. <laughs> 
I got the message, you know, but they didn't, most of them. And we see the display of God's anger and wrath from time to time. But it's in the New Testament, the testament of this love, right? Where the greatest display of the wrath of God was ever displayed, and it's at Calvary. When the God of love so loved that he sent his own son to bear the penalty of your sin and mine at Calvary. And God opened heaven and he poured his wrath, an eternity of wrath, in his justice and judgment, satisfying it through the atoning sacrifice of his son. Now that's amazing. And that's the greatest display of the anger and wrath of God. And if you're in, if you stand in Christ and you are in that burned out circle where the wrath of God once poured out at Calvary, then you're free from judgment. There's no condemnation. It's already been cared for. And that's the gospel. We just say, folks, come and stand in the burned out area around Calvary and you'll be saved from judgment and God's wrath and God's anger. And we ask, is it ever appropriate? Is anger ever appropriate? Well, we, we see in the Bible that God created the emotion of anger, uh, the the uh, 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 emotion of malice. Malice is simply, remember, remember Lincoln's, uh, one of his addresses, what was it? Second inaugural, malice toward none. Well, what in the world? Is malice is simply a studied state of anger. So like, I'm going to be angry. I'm not changing my mind. I'm angry forever, right? Malice, that's what that is. That's anger unchanged. Malice toward none during that, Terrible time in our nation's history. God created uh, uh, the emotion of anger. Uh, most anger, I will tell you at the get-go here, is sinful. Uh, most of your anger and mine is utterly deplorable and wicked. It is. Uh, and there may be occasions when it's not. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about that here. Wow. Well, the Scriptures speak, don't they, of the wrath of the Lamb in the book of Revelation? The wrath of the Lamb. How do you put that in the same picture with a a tender-hearted, gentle, gentle Jesus? Well, let it change the way you think about the awesomeness of the Lord and, and try and hold in just a moment and balance your thinking as to the person of who this Lord Jesus really is. Well, the wrath of the Lamb, this passage in John that we're going to look at gives us a solemn illustration of uh, the wrath of the Lamb. Now, before we look at that, we're going to see two observations. I, want to, I pulled out one of the best-known sermons ever preached. What do you think it is? Anybody have an idea what it might be? Not, I didn't preach it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ron? Yeah, that's right. Ron's exactly right. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Did you ever hear of it? Uh-huh. Did you ever hear it? You read it? You didn't hear it then, huh, Roger? <laughs> uh, it was uh, July 8, 1741, uh, delivered there in, in Enfield, Connecticut, by uh, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. And, uh, and it's entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I went through, I don't have time to read the whole thing because. After if I did that, it, it's so powerful. I I wouldn't even deliver my sermon because why, <laughs> why even try after that, right? But I thought I'd just highlight a couple of things that uh, that come to us from uh, Jonathan Edwards' 
most famous sermon. Studied in, it's even studied in English literature classes at most of the major universities as, uh, as, as an example of 1700 uh, literature in the American count. Early American, um, because it was put in print form, literature. And then this was passed around and caused the sweeping revival as people were, God used it, they were convicted to the heart and, and so on. Um, he bases it on Deuteronomy 32, 30, uh, 32, 35. Their foot shall slide in due time. And he goes on to say um, uh, a number of things. Let me just give you a, a, couple, of, a couple of sentences from each of the paragraphs here that, uh, that he, he says. Uh, there is no lack of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver him out of his hands. They deserve to be cast into hell, so that divine justice never stands in the way. They, already, they are already under the sentence of condemnation to hell. John 3.18, He that believeth not is condemned already. They are now the objects of the very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they do not go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, uh, is not, uh, in whose power they are, is not then very angry with them. For he is, as he is with many miserable creatures now tormented in hell, who are there, who feel uh, and bear the fierceness of God's wrath right now in hell. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth, yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation who may be at ease than he is with those who are now in the flames of the fire of hell. Number five, the devil stands ready to fall upon him, to seize them as his own. At what moment God shall permit him, for they belong to him. The devils watch them. They are ever by the, at their right hand, stand waiting for them like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey and expect to have it, but are kept back. And if God should withdraw his hand by which they are restrained, they would in one moment fly upon their poor souls. The old serpent is gaping for them. Hell opens wide its mouth to receive them, if God should permit it. There are in the souls of wicked men and women those hellish principles reigning that would pre presently kindle and flame out into hell if it were not for God's restraint. It is no security to wicked men for a moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. It is no security to a natural man that he is now in health and that he does not see which way he should now immediately go out of the world by, by any accident, that there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows this is no evidence that a man is not on the very brink at this moment of eternity and that the next step will not be into another world. The unseen, unthought of ways and means of person going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. 
And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The arrows of death, they fly unseen at noonday. The sharpest sight cannot see it coming. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men and women out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God need to be at the expense of a miracle. Natural men's wisdom and care to preserve their own lives or the care of others to preserve them does not secure them even for a moment. To this, divine providence and universal experience do also bear testimony. There is this clear evidence that men's own wisdom is no security to them from death. All all wicked men and women's pains which they use to escape hell, while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men and women, do not secure them from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself, thinking, I shall escape. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done, in what he is now doing, or what he intends to do. They, they hear indeed that there are but few that are being saved and that the greater part of men and women have died heretofore and gone to hell. But each one imagines that he lays out matters better for his own escape than, others who have, uh, than what others have done. He does not intend to come to that place of torment. He says within himself that he intends to take effectual care and to order matters so for himself as not to fail. But the foolish children of men miserably delude themselves in their own schemes and in in confidence in their own strength and wisdom. They trust to nothing but a shadow. If we could speak with them now and inquire one by one whether they expect uh, when alive, whether they expected when they were living, uh, when they should hear about hell ever to be subjects of misery, we doubtless should hear one of them say, No, I never intended to come here. I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should uh, contrive well for myself. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care, but it came upon me unexpected. I did not look at it at that time and in that matter, but death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams. God has laid himself under no obligation by any promises to keep any natural man out of hell for one more moment, so that it is that the natural men are held, as it were, in the very hand of God over the pit of hell they deserve the fiery pit, and are already sentenced to it, and God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great toward them as to those that are actually suffering the execution of the fierceness of his wrath in hell today. And then he makes application. The use of this awful subject may be for the awakening of unconverted persons in the congregation. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. 
It is only the power in the mere pleasure of God that now holds you up. Your wickedness makes you as if, you, if it were heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure toward hell. If God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge, plunge into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one more moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creation is made subject to the bondage of your corruption. Not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine on you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lust, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for men to serve God with and do not willingly subserve to any other purpose. You have offended him. I don't have time to read anymore. You may want to look it up. I mean, I dare say... Most, just about all American congregations put in a contemporary land couldn't stomach something like this. You know, you talk about how do you build a church? They don't ever pull this out on the 10 ways on church building. You can't tell people that. You've got to pat them on the head and tell them how nice they are. Problem with that is that's you're lost in Galatians. That's the wrong gospel. That's not the good news. Well, is anger ever appropriate? We're going to look at it. our text here. Uh, follows the wedding feast in, uh, in John 2, where the Lord came and changed the water uh, into wine. And uh, it follows right off the heels of this. And John is still introducing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to notice in our passage this illustration of the anger of God seen in the person of Jesus as he cleanses the temple. In John 2, let's, let's just read the passage, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And after this, that's the marriage feast at Canaan, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother. Notice he's with Mary and his brothers, his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Well, that's a transitional uh, verse leading us now to this account. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, and do not make my father's house a house of trade or business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years, let me insert, to this day, it had been under construction for 46 years, to build thus far this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? What an idiotic response. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, and when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Father, bless the word now and teach us the things that you have for us. May we think rightly about the wonder of your person, the wonder of Christ, and thank you, Lord, so much for your great love. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there are two observations then for us as Jesus cleansed the temple, revealed, uh, revealing that he has the right to demand holiness. Why does he have the right? Well, he's holy. He's holy. He desires holy worship. And uh, he desires us to be holy. I remind you of the text in Peter, Be holy because I'm holy, thus saith the Lord. And he calls us to holiness of living. And the only way that you and I can do that, we're not talking about self-reformation here. You can't do it on your own. We're not talking behavior modification. Some of you study that in school. We're not talking that. We're talking about change in behavior wrought by the Spirit of God and the power of the gospel in your life today. That's what God's up to. You are his trophies, trophies of his grace. And he's molding you and making you, and the goal is getting you ready for heaven, and you will be holy like the Lord. We still have that sin bent, uh, but uh, it will be goodbye to that when we see the Lord. And we'll be utterly glorified like him. God desires that. Well, what's the first observation? We see two. We see the anger of Jesus. And then the second observation, you see Roman is the authority of Jesus. So the anger of Jesus ought to remind us, again, that God hates sin. God hates it. You say, how much does God hate sin? I say, look at Calvary. That shows how much God hates sin. You and I minimize sin. Oh, it's a boo-boo. Oh, it's one of the dirty dozen. Oh, it's not one of the big ones. You know, and we minimize it so we end up feeling better about ourselves than we ought. We, we ought to really take a daily, close self-examination of our life, deal with what we need to as Christians. If you're here in no crisis, I'm talking to you. If you don't do this, then you're going to be far off the path and not really in touch with uh, where you really are. You'll think more highly of yourself than you ought. I mean, we are sinful men and women. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our motives, I'll tell you, it's scary. And go like, Lord, and the good news is, I'm your project. It's not one of these self-help things, you know, <laughs> the 39 things that, No. It's what God's doing, and he changes our heart, and he picks us up, and he gives us the power uh, to, to become holy, like Jesus. 
And this reminds us here, this anger of Jesus. He's coming right out of a wedding, right? Goes up as he has all male, boy, male Jews, 12 years and up, had to make the trek once, at least once a year. Here's Passover. They had to come uh, and, uh, and, and enter into this. They had to pay uh, half a shekel, a temple tax. And uh, usually it went on for a week with a feast after. There are hundreds of thousands of people here. If you're thinking like, oh, you know, there are the disciples and there's only a few and look how thin it is. Must look maybe like Market Street in Harrisburg. Nothing like that. I mean, there were thousands. And, and if we can trust Josephus, there are well over a million people that would gather here for this, this high water mark in the life of the Jewish calendar. And the Lord has, this isn't his first, this is his first as he's now in his beginning his public ministry, and there will be three of them. And you know, of course, the last one he comes in and he offers his life. A three-year public ministry. He's about 30 years old at this point. So he's been there. The last time we saw him, do you remember when was that? When's the last time we saw him at Jerusalem? Uh, at Passover time, remember? Mark? That's right, 12 years old. What was he doing? That's right, he was teaching and listening and 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 asking questions of the, of the leaders. And Mary and Joseph had left him. Remember? You ever leave your kids somewhere? Left them at the restaurant. We did that with Sarah once. You know that. I've said that. We drove away and... <laughs> where? Is, ah! Turn the car around. <laughs> she hasn't been right since. I remember we came... I'll never forget that. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. But they had closed the restaurant. We come walking up. Oh, Sarah. And she's like, you left me. You know, she's about this huh? <laughs> anyway, uh, what, what we, yeah, they left. The, they they were they traveled family. It was like a reunion time. You know, aunts and uncles, brothers, sisters, and then they walked. It wasn't the Pennsylvania Turnpike? Walking days back up to Galilee, and the kids would all play together, dragging behind, and they're like, and they're counting all the. Hey, where's Jesus? And they realized that's how that happened when he was twelve. That's right. Well, the anger of Jesus reminds us how much God hates sin, and we are sinners. Now, why did Jesus become angry? Verses 15, 16, and 17, uh, we see that at first it was the business being conducted in the temple courts that provoked him. This, this uh, market uh, was the court of the Gentiles, yet the inner court, you had to be Jewish to be able to, and clean, to be ceremonial clean, to be in that. Then around the outside of it, you had the portico, actually it was covered with a roof, and the columns would hold it up, was the court of the Gentiles. And that's where, and it was about 14 acres in size on the Temple Mount. This is the Herod's Temple. It's under construction. It's been being built 46 years. You know it's going to go on for another number of decades. And finally, it will be finished in the year 63. Uh, and, G and we're around the year 28 now, 29 in the year of our Lord, in the, and it's going to be finished around 63. It will only be used for seven years and then utterly destroyed by the Romans. Utterly destroyed. So it's under construction, but business is booming around the outside. 14 acres of the Gentile court, an acre is about the size of a football field. Good way to think about it. 
Our land is nine and a quarter acres. That's nine and a quarter football fields, if you will. Good way to think about it. Helps me. I'm visually oriented that way. Uh, but uh, in all the trading going on around, you got money changers. Some of you have traveled to other countries, and uh, you got to change your currency, and they always take a, a slice. You know, those bums, you know, skimming it off, 2%, 3%, 5%, you know, like, and some money, I don't want your money, that's garbage money, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, I've had that happen, and, and that kind of thing, and they're selling, yeah, now, uh, they were initially told, bring your, your lambs, bring your turtle dove, bring your, and all that, they had to be of a certain, remember all the restriction, they had to be without blemish, they had to be uh, a male, they had, all this kind of restriction in that, and they're, they're walking for days, so it's kind of hard to do that, maybe, and so, uh, for convenience sake, they, uh, let's put a market around it. You can see how a lot of times things become begin good, right? Uh, let's help the folks out here. And not only that, they were USDA approved. Because a lot of times they bring their little lamb in and they take a close look and go, oh, I'm sorry, you got a bruise on that thing. Mm, no good. You know, like, oh, I brought them all the way down from Capernaum. No, eh, sorry, you know, lamb chops for that thing. You know, no sacrifice. And so, and now you got unsaved uh, Unsaved, many of them religious leaders. You've got the priest. You got you got all that business going on. They go like, well, let's help the people out. Let's do that. Let's sell the animals here, and then after a while, now unsaved. Hey, hey, hey! Have I got a deal for you? We can make some money on this, and that's what they did. They started. Uh, it, it, talk about a captive audience, a captive market. Talk about a monopoly. Do you like to buy from a, uh, a monopolistic uh, type of enterprise? They got you by the pants. You got to pay the price. You can He's cheaper over there. No, they're all the same price. And they were jacked up. And when I read some of the old writings, it was like four and five times. You're like, holy cow, you can't. And they're already certified. So he did, okay, they got the stamp. The priest already said okay on it. So you can, you see it? The Americans, they know how to make money. So like, ooh, I see what's going on here. You know, like ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and and you, you're right, the priests are making a big cut. It's kind of like the mafia priests. They are. They're like, hey, <laughs> things are good. You know, business is good. We got a million people coming in. They all need the animals. And, you know, we got to do this thing, the sacrifice thing. Let's make it easy for them. And they're like... Ripping the people off. That's what's going on here. And the temple tax, I mean, and then we have a dollar. So we go like, you know, a how, what's the deal on that? It wasn't a unified coinage, and it was part of the Roman Empire at that point. You know, they hated Pilate, right? He was a governor. It was a Roman province. So, so the coins would float around, although they were debased, a lot of them, but they had Caesar's picture on it. You could not use that for Jewish worship. I'm sorry. Now, if you want to throw something like that in our offering, we'll, t we'll take it and let Mark figure that out. But uh, there, you didn't dare put anything else in there but a Jewish shekel. Had to be, every male had to pay a half a shekel. That was his annual temple tax. Boop, there he is, flipped it in there. No Roman money, none of that other Gentile money from other countries around that floated everywhere. So they go like, hey, we can help people out here. That will help them convert their money. We'll give them the animals, get a nice cut there. I mean, after all, it's God's work, right? And, uh, and also, we'll, uh, we'll exchange their money. We're glad to do that for a fee. Money changer. That's what's going on. 
and had no heart for God, um, and it was a disaster, really. And the Lord came in. You can see him. He's kind of walking up to the temple, walks in, I mean, and he sees this, and it makes him sick, really. Makes him sick. Um, what was the nature of Jesus' anger? Isn't it a sin to get angry? Well, A, uh, his is what is called righteous indignation. It results from a zeal for the honor of God in God's uh, work. It's a, it's a strong reaction. It's a revulsion in the heart uh, when God's word and his principles are utterly trounced and denigrated. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, I ask, is it possible, or I say, I tell you, it, because of, in the person of Christ, we see it, and in the person of, of God our Father, it is possible to be good. God is good. God is great. And yet at points, God is angry, and all at the same time, and in balance, and undiminished. And uh, if you want to think about that and let that blow your mind for a little bit, it will and it can, and it should. Remember, when we see Christ, we are seeing God. And if Christ got angry, God gets angry. The implications are tremendous. God's love is a holy love that burns against sin and cannot overlook it. And so punished, so, and so punished Christ the Lord, who voluntarily took our place and became sin for us and received in his own body, upon his own soul, the wrath of God's anger that hung over the elect, over his own. Christians are told, we see in Ephesians 4.26, we are told to have anger. It's kind of strange. Uh, he just throws it in in 4.26. Be angry and sin not, the old translation said. Be angry and sin not. In other words, uh, if you have anger uh, and it's permissible, uh, uh, when you have that, it ought not to be sinful anger. Don't sin with that. That strong reaction for God's honor in God's way. Be careful. You're still a sinful man or woman, though redeemed. And you can cross that line and, uh, and sin. Well, how, how do we know where that line is? Well, an old Puritan wrote, I'm resolved to be angry in such a way as not to sin, and so to be angry at nothing but sin. Now that's not bad. You might have to read that a couple of times. Not angry at the sinner that perpetrated it, but at the sin. The institution, the sin, the law, whatever it was, the court, that uh, is denigrating and stamping underfoot the honor and the ways of God. Angry at sin, but not the sinner. That's the point. We have to readily admit that far too often our anger is rooted in absolute selfishness, right? Somebody cuts us off, somebody says something, and we want to bop them, cut them off, lay on the horn, shout and, and yell, and all that kind of stuff. I didn't get my way what I wanted right now, right? Ours is filled uh, almost entirely with self and sin, and, and therefore, you know, to say that is ever is anger ever appropriate? I hesitate to preach that because the door hardly has to be open because we can't allow ourselves to become angry. But most of our anger is sinful. Am I right in that? Amen. It is. It is. 
We go like, same to you, fellow. I'll see you and raise you. You know, like, and we, and, and it's just that that old bent within us. You know, you bop me in the eye, I'll take take both of yours. I'll see you and raise you, kind of thing. And we go. Like, it's only of the grace of God to do that. But and so uh, this whole this whole deal of being angry uh, at the sin, but not the sinner, uh, is uh, is really a big key, a part of this. You know, I can. I pray most every day that God would reverse the abortion in this land. I hate that. I'm angry against it, that, that little, harmless, beautiful babies would be so uh, exterminated in the place of, that ought to be the greatest protected place in all their existence, the nine months in the womb, and they're evacuated and destroyed. And, and some of that where they, 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 the moms give birth and they poke the brain and suck, suck the brains out. I, you know, I don't know how, I, I feel like throwing up when I read about that. I can't hardly read about that stuff. And I go like, this can't be in. This is the Third Reich. What is wrong with us? Oh, God. And there's not a person in view there. But I can't remain, and I don't want to be numb to the fact. You guys, we, we, we get numb to these social injustices and these evils of our day where the innocent get run over or hurt and the weak and the strong crush and destroy. Incidentally, incidentally, uh, you could use that sometime when talking to folks, you know, this, this whole thing of evolution and social Darwinianism and all that kind of thing. Uh, use that with your friends sometimes. You, you don't believe in, in, in evolution, do you? Oh, yeah. Well, everybody quotes it like catechism, you know, because they're utterly brainwashed in the culture. I mean, it's, it's atheism is what it is. And say, oh, really? Well, then why are you, why are you for... Uh, uh, why are you for you can ask, why are you for the weak? Why are you raising money for the Africans? Why are you helping the children, the orphans? Why, why would you want to do anything like that? Well, what do you mean? It's the right thing to do. I said, no, you're not consistent. Have you ever looked at nature? At nature? Look at nature. You limp your lunch. You limp your lunch. I'm sorry. That lion is going to eat the one who's going to, you know, <laughs> there's lunch. That's natural, naturalism. Aren't you running contrary to naturalism and, uh, and so on? Why? You, you mean you might have an ethical sense somewhere deep inside that makes you say, well, that's not right? In other words, I'd just go in and steal your money? Don't tell me that's right or wrong. You're talking in an absolute. You say you don't believe in it. You say there's no reason to be here. There's no reason for anything. So I could just wipe out what, incidentally, when that happens... And that's what happened. We saw it in the Third Reich. Might becomes the last thing. And because I can, I will. Because I can go and kill and destroy and wipe out, because I'm stronger than you and you can't stop me, I, I'll do it. And it becomes so ugly. I mean, Schaefer wrote about that years ago. As we embrace as a people, this, uh, there's a, a type of human life that is uh, expendable. In other words, abortion. Get ready. And if we embrace that, and we are, because it's being jammed down the throat. Incidentally, the answer is not paint signs and go out. We're against it, okay? That's not the answer. The answer is one by one by one, you and I share the gospel in a grassroots movement with people whose hearts become changed, and all of a sudden, they start to change who they vote for. Do you know that? It's a grassroots movement of the gospel. That's the flavor of the gospel. 
That doesn't mean you're, you don't have a citizen and a voice and a vote, and you can do that. It's just, and, and I encourage you to write and do that, and I have done those kind of things. But as people's hearts are changed, it changes everything, everything. Good and evil, there is such a thing. And yet, if you embrace Darwinianism and atheism, you have no basis to say there's any difference from good and evil. That's Hinduism. There's no difference. Just do something. You know, you can either kill the baby or help the old lady across the street. It doesn't really matter. Just authenticate yourself, you know? That's the kind of sloppy, garbage thinking that fills the mush of minds of people. And that's what's happening in our country as we distantly hear less and less of the gospel. Because God's people aren't the salt and light. We're sort of swimming, we are, in a polluted stream. And not the salt and light we ought to be. And so I can, let me go back, I can in my prayer time be very angry over the slaughter of babies and the abuse of children and the sexual abuse and hate that. The weak get it taken advantage of and hurt and harmed and, and all of that. And it ought not be right that way. And I've heard horrible stories from people, and it makes me weep, really. I can't be neutral. You can't love righteousness. You can't love good without hating evil. You know that in your own yard. Somebody said, you can't ever be a good gardener. If you love flowers, you love them all, aren't they? If you don't hate weeds, you're like, oh, I love weeds too. Well, you're not going to be a good gardener then because they'll choke the life out. You see, you can't be. And God holds all that in balance, all at the same time. And we do a very bad job often of that, don't we? Uh, anyway, well, Psalm 69 9, is the verse that Jesus is, quote, is actually carrying out. It's uh, one of the seven imprecatory psalms. There's a word. You, know, you tell your friends this week, did you learn anything at church? Yeah, I learned the word imprecatory. Well, they'll be impressed. Imprecatory. There are seven imprecatory psalms. There are 150 psalms. Seven of them are imprecatory. It means there's a point where the psalmist calls God to curse the enemies of God. That's an interesting theology, all of that. I saw a thesis done on that one time. And, uh, and, so, and, and Psalm 69 is one of it. David writes it. David represents the people of God who are being abused by evil, and he calls upon God to strike them. In one place, he says, uh, in one of the imprecatory verses of the of different, break their teeth. I don't hear prayers that way too often. Now I lay me down. Lord, break their teeth. That's in a, I mean, that's for God's cause and God's just. And, and, and that's, a, that's a righteous indignation standing for the things that God stands for. That's part of Psalm 139, incidentally. It's kind of strange as it hangs in there, those latter verses in it. Uh, but, but really what he's saying is God's loyalty to me ought to invoke my loyalty to God into the things that God is doing. And when we see it attacked and undermined and broken, we can't just be nat a, a neutral with no response. What's the matter with us? And yet we don't focus on the person. We pray that God would be glorified and work in and through that and change. And in the midst of it, we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come. We can't wait until these things are changed forever. Wow. And incidentally, you, you are good at doing that. I mean, this whole thing on, uh, I'm kind of jumping down here a little bit. Let me, let me, let me back up. Uh, what was the result of Jesus' anger? Uh, the temple was purged. He made a whip. The whips were probably from the strands 
that were laying around that uh, the animals had been tied up with and then bought and then used for sale. And there, there's strands laying around, so they're easy for him to pick up and make a whip out of these strands. Now, that's quite a picture. He just came from a wedding now, down to Capernaum, up here for Passover. Here's the gentle Jesus. Incidentally, uh, I always thought when a, a, um, a godly man or woman who, is, who is, has, exudes with the love of Christ and has a peace and a joy, and that's their manner as God's growing Monday through Friday and through the weekend, all of a sudden, and it's very unusual, they get aroused and excited to something. That gets my attention, doesn't it? The best fighter is one who's not a fighter. Really. Someone who's always like, come on, knock it off. He's walking around, just come on, come on, knock it off. I don't care what he has to say at all, right? But the gentle, peaceful, loving one, teacher, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, What's going on here? It really gets your attention. They're the, they're the best fighter. They're the, be, you go like, what? Because you're looking at the whole package. And uh, so he purges the temple, makes a, turns the tables over. I'm telling you, he had biceps. I mean, a lot of guys like to hear that. They go, why are all the women in church? Where are the men? You know, is Jesus some sort of effeminate? He, you cannot be a stoneworker carpenter in that day. Right, Mike? It's hard enough with the modern tools and stuff we have today. I mean, my yoke is easy. I mean, the yoke, he would make that yoke and, and, and plane that thing. And uh, you think it was beautiful? I think they were the best ones ever made. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. I like that, right? A man's man he was in every sense of the way. One man sent all these people, hundreds of them, hundreds of them fleeing. I mean, uh, he, he, uh, he's a man's man, but he's more than a man, isn't he? God's uh, terror had fallen upon them uh, in this market site uh, fiasco known as the temple of God, the outer court, the court of the Gentile. This was a courageous and dramatic act. There's no question about it. Uh, he would do it one more time. This is the beginning of his ministry. This, uh, it, the last week of his ministry, now some blend it together. I don't know why A.W. Pink sees it one and the same. I don't think he's right if some of you are reading there on that. Uh, their differences are too, too big and so on. Uh, he's doing it here and he does it later. The, uh, the, the priest didn't get the message because uh, they allowed uh, the, the, the traitors to come in again during those intervening years. And then until he, he cleanses the temple one more time later in Matthew 21, verse 12, I have, is the second cleaning of the temple. Uh, and that would certainly hasten his death. The, well, the whip was real. The whip was real. I can't ever read that without my father. My father was uh, believed in, in, in spankings. And uh, I probably only got mm, maybe a third of what I probably should have got. Don't tell him. Don't tell him. And uh, I, can, I can remember, uh, when I read that, I go like, holy cow, <laughs> yeah, oh man. I remember uh, one time he said, and my father went, went to military school, and so, you know, there, there's a certain way they discipline the boys, and uh, we, we got it but good. And, and that was all the Lord's uh, orchestration, or maybe I'd be over in Camp Hill. At, you know, at, I wondered about that. If I had so much energy, it was going to go somewhere. So one day he said, I was yay high. He said, all right, we're going to do something different now. I'm not, he didn't have a belt. And he said, you go up my closet and pick the belt. That, uh, I go like, oh, man. 
But I learned something. You don't pick the real narrow one. I didn't realize that at the time. You only make that mistake once. Yep. And I'm, I really appreciate it. I didn't appreciate it at the time. But, uh, yeah. One time I, I did something. This, this confession's good, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, I did something really stupid, really stupid, really evil. And uh, I got caught. And I was seven or eight. And my father came home. Go up to your bedroom, my mother said. The police called and said, hey, Bev, you know, your son, blah, 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 and so on. So I came home and I uh, went to my bedroom dying until my father got home. And he came home. <clears throat> I barely ate dinner because uh, we always ate dinner first. I don't know why, but really messed up dinner. <laughs> and he goes, and he was, uh, I could tell he was thinking what to do. And he said, uh, he said, I'm going to, we're going to do something a little different this time. Uh, <clears throat> I can either give you the spanking of your life. I go like, holy cow, I don't know if I'll live. He said, uh, or, I go, well, what's the or? <laughs> he said, you know, it is, uh, it is July, and uh, I'll just ground you for the whole month. Really? So I thought about it. But he said, it's a, you know, you make your decision now. We don't change. So I go like, mm, okay, I'll take B. <laughs> so you're grounded now. You're going to do all your chores. got to cut the grass, got to clip and edge and all that. But he said, no pool, no baseball, no mm-mm-mm. I go like, yeah, all right, all right, I got out of that one, you know, like, oh, after three days, I was begging him to beat me. I was, I was, uh, my friends were like, hey, we're going out of the pool, ah, you know, like, where's the belt, no, and he held, I, the whole month, I lost the whole, I, I, I should get that back sometime, but the whole month of July, I, I, I can't read this without thinking. And why? He, he loved my, my father loved me. He wanted the best for me. And he knew this kid needs to hit a brick wall. He's got to learn authority. He can't just be doing what he wants to do at any moment. And that was God's hand in my life, instructing me in those early years. And it's funny the things you remember. You're sitting there thinking about, you know, all these things yourself here, and you're not thinking about me at the moment. But those things come back. You get old, and you're like, hey, I remember that. You know? And it's even funnier now because uh, I live more years than my father. So then they go, it changes the whole way you think about it. Anyway, he picks up the score. The, the, the whip was real. The, the anger was genuine. And uh, he cleaned the temple. Uh, what about a second result? Hatred toward him uh, was, was becoming um, fixed. I mean, they were going to hate him and, and, and so on. And, and I'm reminded, any effort, someone put, any effort to correct evils in, in a church or a society will always meet fierce opposition. I mean, it, uh, when evil is entrenched like that, the Jewish leaders rejected him and his words, and they were blinded, weren't they? Blinded. I remind you, his action here was not merely impulsive. It wasn't like uh, he just, uh, just got the idea. It was a, it was a prediction of, his, uh, uh, of him being Messiah. You check Malachi 3, uh, verses 1 and 3. And it says just that. It was, again, another prophetic fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. The act was the, was the sign of his Messiahship. Wow. Well, what are some ways that we might express non-sinful anger? I mean, we're pretty good at the sinful stuff. We get, you know, holy cow, we come up with a whole bunch of stuff there. But uh, what are some ways? I mentioned to you about uh, my prayer time and others. I've been ri- even written in in publications on People's Page, uh, prote- you know, talking about 
uh, that abortion issue. Well, what, what, are some other, what are some ways that you and I, uh, can you think of anything that we can do to express non-sinful anger? <laughs> non-sinful anger. We, uh, oh, one, by way of illustration, we do this all the time uh, in this regard. You say, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the sin, love the sinner. You do it every day. You know that? You do it with yourself. You sin. I sin. You go like, ah, oh, hate this. But we're like, oh, I love myself. <laughs> we do. We do. We do. So we're really good at that. Hate the sin. Ah. Oh. oh, I love myself. So we're, we're good at it. But what are, some other, what are some ways that we can do that? Express non-sinful anger. The sin not the perpetrator of it. Vengeance is mine, the Lord said. I will repay. Any, anything come to mind? Anything? This is your turn to say something if you've got something to say. <laughs> anything? Mark, you got a thought? No, that's it. No, that's God's honor, and it's God's name is not being used in an honorable way. It's being used as a verbal pause, or worse. Um, I, I have found, uh, Mark said, uh, when people use God, the Lord's name in vain, and that's increasing. It is. Uh, I have found, and, and for a long time, uh, uh, you, you know, you want to almost attack them and say something sarcastic or say something pointed or blunt, I found that really doesn't work most of the time. Best thing to do is uh, get alongside them later. I have found that people don't even realize they're saying the Lord's name. And if you just say, hey, can I say something? You say, well, what's that? Particularly if you're, you're working with them all the time, they're in the office, or they're in your family. I had, a, I had an aunt that was lost, and everything was GD this and GD that. And, and we were like going crazy when an aunt came to visit. It was like we had to sanitize the whole house because God was damned everywhere, and we were like dying. The, I think the best way is come alongside and say, hey, you probably aren't even aware of this, are you? But, you know, we love the Lord, and you use the Lord's name, and I don't think you're praying. Are you praying? When you, you're not praying. And you're using, and it's offensive. And, uh, and they go like, oh, I, I did. I, did, I, did I say? And they, a lot of times they're not even aware that they're using the Lord's name. They're just... Yeah, I, I mean, there was a point I would say. Some would would you ever let me say use your mother's name? What's your mother's name? Uh, well, my mother's name's Betsy. Oh, Betsy. Oh, Bet. Now some of your cars may be named Betsy. <laughs> my mother's used to. Say. But it's, it, it, what do you mean? Like you keep referring to the Lord's name like that's offensive to God, and and He hears everything and all that. I don't know how you handle that, but that's it. For that's God's honor and God's glory, and to speak of it in such a casual or a mindless way. When people say, gee, oh my, you know, it's mindless, or it's a cultural, oh, I saw the celebrity say that, and oh, that seems so sophisticated. And so they'll mimic that kind of, now that's where that comes from. But it really shows the depths of our depravity, doesn't it? 
that we would speak that way with the breath that God gives? Anything else come to mind? Yes, Paul? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you talk about in the church setting. Now, it's a very common. Some of you come out of church settings where um, uh, they're going to they're gonna raise money now, okay, for the, for the church, and we're going to have a rummage sale, a, raffi- uh, 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 a uh, uh, raffle. We're going to raffle tickets off, or we're going we're gonna to have this and that. We're going to sell something. We're going to give something to people so that they give something, and we'll make the difference, and it'll and you go like... I don't think so. I, we never see that in Scripture. And it's some of you come out of a, a lot of uh, backgrounds where that's how uh, a lot of money, nickels and dimes and dollars, and that are raised. But when you search the Scriptures, you never find that. You always find free will love offering from God's people. Not the world, God's people. Give, not to get, but we give, we give free will, we give our tithes, we give our offerings, and as needs come up, we go, Lord, everything I have. And we willfully give that because, and count it a joy to do that. Not because Grammy made 10 apple pies, and we can sell them for 20 bucks each and make $10 a pie, and all that. In a lot of churches, and when that happens, that's usually the sign they're way on the downhill side. Way on the downhill side. That's God's honor and God's glory. And we don't need American mercantilism brought into the church to, to make the difference. It's sort of very similar to the, to the selling the animals, right? We've got to help the... Okay. Yeah, Raj? Another way is uh, when somebody holds a, a belief that would lead them astray and lead them down a sinful path, you teach them the, the way Paul tells Timothy servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle to all men have to teach patience and meekness instructing those that oppose themselves that's another way to to object to the sin is by by correction correction. that's right and and, and a lot of churches uh, embrace error and uh, and and folks embrace the error in the church and there's a place for church discipline proper teaching and uh, in, in a spirit of unity and love and correction. Why? Because we can all, what? Left to ourselves, right? We all wander away. We read that in the Proverbs. If you stop listening to the Word of God, you will wander away. Our tendency, we said that last week, we drift, right? You don't drift, I'm drifting. We're, I'm drifting toward God. Never happened. Never happened. You're far away. That's just the way we are correction good teaching well the second thing we don't have i don't have time to develop it but it's the authority of jesus ought to move us to obedience i mean um, his word should end all other discussion this is the lord of heaven and earth jesus claims this unique authority when he says my father's house 
By saying, my father, he was declaring and asserting his unique position as the divine son of God. And consequently, his right to reinforce the purity of his father's place of worship. I mean, God showed up in the person of Christ. And he demonstrated a great messianic sign. And the Jewish leaders go like, what what sign do you show us? Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Duh, he just showed them the sign. (laughs) Malachi 3, 1 and 3, Psalm 69, 9. That was the prophesied sign of the Messiah that he would come uh, the zeal for my father's house has consumed me, and that he would come quickly and, and cleanse and prepare the place of worship, Malachi. Uh, a- a- actually, actually, they're not seeking information. You know, not all questions uh, really seek information. You know that? What do you think is going on here? What? Now, Jesus, what? I just cleaned out. Everyone went scurrying away. I mean, it was the fear of God and the terror of God for a moment. And they're like, uh, uh, Jesus, we have one question here. Uh, what, what authority? Are you, are you kidding me? They were angry at him. I mean, they, he just cut off their business. And they're like wrapping it in religious garb here. Like, oh, no, we, we need a sign here now. Uh, you know, get the peanut butter out of your eyes. You just saw one in technicolor. That's what's going on. Wow. The authority of Jesus. He's the Son of God. God verily. Wow. Well, his authority is established by what? His knowledge of the future. Destroy this temple, referring to his body. And I'll raise it up in three days. They ask that idiotic question. 46 years here? I thought, please. You know, sit down. Thank you. I mean, if they were in earnest, they would say, well, Jesus, could you tell us what do you mean by that? You know, and so, no, it's just foolhearted, blinded, blinded they were. You know, when God speaks, many people really don't listen. They were not listening. Here's God, creator of heaven, speaking through his, his words and through his action. One reason people don't listen, like these priests, and many are wrapped up with their own outlook and their own way of doing things, that they are privately angry with God for not conforming to their plans. Jesus messed their plans up. Another reason uh, people don't hear today is, is they don't approach God through uh, the Scriptures. I mean, the Lord is simply fulfilling Scripture here. They don't want to hear what Jesus had to say. A lot of people like that. A lot of folks. And another and final reason is many people don't want to listen to Jesus because their minds are filled with garbage, wrong ideas that we have all received from this world, and if our minds are filled with these wrong ideas, we'll not hear Jesus, and spiritual truths will seem foolish and incomprehensible to us because our minds are filled with a bunch of garbage or trash or meaningless nonsense, mush. In any event, they didn't listen to him, and he knew their hearts. He went on to heal probably a number in the city of Jerusalem during that week. And uh, they loved him as the healer, but not as the Messiah. And the omniscient Lord God in verse 25 would not give himself to them because their faith was not genuine. They had a type of faith uh, that could never save. Now that sounds like James 2, doesn't it? 
You know, there is a faith that does not save. Do you see that verse 24 and 25? He wouldn't give themselves. They were believing in him, but he was not believing in them. That's the word that is used there. They didn't have saving faith. It was the intellectual kind of faith. Wow, you're a marvelous miracle worker. You're a healer. Doesn't tell us what these other miracles were that he did. But uh, the Lord looked right at it into their hearts and knew they were not regenerate. And it reminds us that there is a faith that does not save. Faith alone saves, but a faith that is alone does not save. And they had the type of faith that was not saving faith. They were still lost. Well, what can we say? Uh, lessons for our life, and we'll be done. Number one, at the very least, Jesus' act of zeal ought to reprove us for our shameful lack of zeal for God and his honor. I mean, look at the zeal the Lord Jesus has for his Father, his Father's honor, his Father's uh, worship. And, uh, and, and, and when you compare that with our often lack and ho-hum uh, zeal, it, it ought to reprove it. May the Lord forgive us in this. And light a fire under us for him and for his work. And to uh, use the gifts that he has given us for the advancement of his work. Oh, I pray that. That there would be an ounce of his zeal in me, in us, in you. Number two, uh, it is not wrong for us as Christians to have a righteous anger for things that dishonor and oppose Christ in his work. Remember, we direct our anger toward the sin and not the sinner. And you can do this, as I remind you. We practice this daily as we hate the sin in our own life. We hate those sins. They're like a chain. And yet we continue to kind of love ourselves. The answer to the title of the sermon. Number three, today, if you're saved, your body is the temple of God. We don't worship God in Jerusalem. We don't worship God in, in, in some place or synagogue. But now, today, if you know Christ the Lord, your body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and the Lord is dealing with purifying that temple in Jerusalem. But how about our own bodies? We're to honor the Lord with the bodies he's given us and not give ourselves to sin in sinful ways that we so easily seem to do. The Lord calls us, commands us to be holy. And by the power of the gospel in us, we are to do that. Now let's do it. Say, Lord, today, forgive me, cleanse me, pick me up. I want to be pleasing before you. Number four, the Jesus' cleansing of the temple is a beautiful picture of what he does in our lives after salvation. He gets rid of the old stuff. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Good riddance. Behold, all things are new. This is a new way of thinking and a new way of, uh, and it cleans us. And that cleansed heart is so wonderful. He creates that new heart within us. Amen. And number five, God hates sin. But he has provided the only way of escape. And that is through the death of his only son, the Lord Jesus. He paid the price for your sin on Calvary's cross. Today, I urge you to receive him as your Lord and Savior. If you never have, in a sinner's prayer, Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you. Your death as my very own. Thank you for dying for me. 
the quietness of your heart, with contrition and confession of sin, receive the free gift that God offers, and you will be saved today. Well, is anger ever appropriate? Yes. Often with us, it's not very good, is it? May God help us to be angry at the things that God is angry at, and never at the sinner, but at the sin. And may God, who calls us to hate sin and to love holiness, may by his authority call us to be the holy vessels he desires us to be. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this grand picture. It really helps us to think rightly about Jesus and and all that he is, and in addition to that, that he can exhibit anger at that which is dishonoring to you. And I thank you, Lord, so much for our Savior. I thank you for the gift of salvation. I thank you for the Word of God and the opportunities of another week to live and to serve you. And I pray, Lord, that we'll be engaged and that we'll be focused and that our priorities will be right and daily we'll practice confession of sin and have a holy distrust for the sin bent within us and that we'll live a life that's pleasing to you by your strength and through the power of the gospel alone. Until we gather again, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.